0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Marit Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back
1: to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver and me. Niels Karstblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, let me start by saying welcome, with the hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity and hunger for learning, enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation last week with Mark, Uh, where we covered a lot of ground, including some of his experience from running the legendary CTA firm John W. Henry, which was the largest CTA firm back in the day. And it's always fascinating to hear stories from that time. And if you don't know who John Henry is, well, he's the current owner of the Liverpool Football Club and the Boston Red Sox. And guess where he made the money to afford these two world-class teams from? Well, trend following... As you know, the aim of the podcast is to democratize the hedge fund CTA or quant investment world, whatever you prefer to call it. And if you want to be part of this journey, what we ask of you is that if you could comment, if you could share these episodes, if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we greatly appreciate it. And this way, we can see that you are getting something of our time and dedication each week to create these episodes and as long as that continues we will of course continue to do them rob great to be back with you this week how are you doing how are things where you are in the uk
2: uh wet and tomorrow but hopefully we'll have some snow which we've not had yet in my part of the country so my children are very much looking forward to that so i hope it arrives or i'll be very disappointed
1: yeah, I did see actually in my uh, birth country of Denmark that they, they have had some, some, some snow, which is not that usual um, for, for Denmark to have. So uh, you see all the children out playing, which is uh, nice. Now, this week was uh, quite a week than last week, but for me, the rise in interest rates is something to be watched closely by investors, not only because of the huge holdings of bonds in many institutional portfolios around the world, not least pension funds, and the devastating impact higher interest rates will have on not only the investment returns, but also the ability for companies and governments to service the huge level of debt that we've taken on board in the last Decade or so, and recently the Fed's balance sheet uh, just hit a fresh all-time high of seven point four one trillion, as the U.S. central bank added nearly six billion worth of Treasury securities. Total assets now equal thirty-five percent of U.S. GDP, versus ECB that is at seventy point five percent, and the BOJ at a staggering one hundred and thirty-two percent of GDP. And despite a weaker than expected non-farm payroll number yesterday, treasuries in the US, as in 10-year and 30-year yields, each rose to uh, near one-year highs of 1.17% and 1.97% respectively. And speaking of servicing the debt, I did hear this week on a podcast on Macro Voices where Russell Napier had done a lot of research into at what point the pain starts And according to his research, when the US five-year yield hits 2.20%, then that is where it starts becoming a really devastating level of of interest rates for the economy. I should say, I think that in Europe, it's actually lower than 2.2%. And of course, we are not very far from that. I know we're going to get into this a lot more in our conversation today, Rob, but I just wanted to stress the importance of keeping an eye on what's going on in interest rates at the moment. But let's talk about what stood out for you, Rob, since you were last on the show in terms of performance, in terms of market moves.
2: Yeah, so this morning I ran a couple of reports uh my performance. I did a week, just for a comparison with you, and, and this week I'm down on 61 basis points. And as you might expect, given what you said, some of the biggest losers were interest rate markets. So I lost uh, 40 basis points in eurodollars. 30 basis points in US 10 years and against that I had some gains in in soybeans and and uh, in in lean hogs as well so and then for the year I guess a similar story just just a slightly bigger number because it's a longer period so since January the 1st I thought that would be a nice point to start start the uh, report I'm down 1.26 percent and um, the biggest loser is euro dollar again so the fixed income markets very much the driver of my PL with Everything else just adding noise, really, on top of that.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, on our side, I mean, on the done side, the first week of uh, February actually coming back to a normal, more normal market environment was certainly a lot better, and both our trend following and volatility strategies benefited from that. In the trend following side, we saw some strong gains in the equity sector as stocks soared really to new highs or at least multi-year highs in other in other markets. And another, the sector that had a really good week was energy, maybe with the exception of, of natural gas, where prices also saw this continuation of the uptrend that started back in, in April of last year. And in addition, there were a couple of individual markets like copper, cotton, sugar that also did well for our trend-following strategies. Grains had a very quiet week on our side uh, but fixed income uh, is really where we saw some headwind uh, like you alluded to and that is certainly related to this stealth rise in in interest rates the slow and steady down move in bond prices that we've seen has certainly led to a not insignificant reduction uh, in long exposure within our strategies when it comes to uh, interest rates and some of the markets have actually now flipped to short positions now for my own trend following model portfolio it was a pretty solid week actually up 1.69 percent that leaves the year-to-date return down 0.06 percent performance from those of you who had listened to the christmas new year episodes i did where i broke down the portfolio design Group 1 and 2 models were up one16 and 2% respectively. And the last group, the fast-reacting models, Group 3, were down 1.48% so far this month. In terms of sector attribution, so far this month, energies are doing best, followed by precious metals, base metals, and FX. And the laggers really are just the bonds. And if we drill down to kind of single markets, Nikkei is doing really well, uh, as is Platinum, Heating Oil, and Brent. Not surprising, I guess. And um, bonds and US 10-year notes are really the worst two markets so far this year. In terms of the trading this week, Monday was the busiest day by far, where the system got stopped out of some of its long positions in the Australian SPY, uh, so Australian equities, only actually to buy some of them back uh, later in the week. Also uh, got stopped out of some long NASDAQ and Swiss franc positions during the week, And the model also exited a long silver position. And then in the faster moving systems, it has tried to go short the German Bund. And I think it got out of a short DAX position that it had put on earlier. So, yeah, I mean, 10, 15 trades in a week, so nothing too dramatic. But anyways, Rob, before we move on to questions that came in from uh, Michael, Dennis, Woody, Daniel, and a couple of other DMs that we received yesterday i wanted because it has been an interesting period since we last spoke and i just wanted to hear your kind of thoughts maybe on the whole GameStop issue you know what your observations were i know we've covered it a little bit already but you know you've got a different perspective so i'd love to hear your thoughts i couldn't help actually on that point that um, i noticed that chris cole this week i think it was tweeted that major turning or acceleration points in markets occur when high percentage of options are expiring within one week. And I think that's probably what happened to some extent during this GameStop debacle. But anyway, how have you experienced or or what are your thoughts about this?
2: It's been really interesting because I think it's the only time in my entire life that my my 16-year-old daughter, who um, has got no interest in finance whatsoever, fair play to her that that's i'm not expecting my children to follow in my footsteps she started showing me um you know videos from um tiktok and other such platforms related to gamestop and and i'm like oh my goodness this is a massive thing because it's actually exploded into the kind of wider consciousness of people who really don't care about finance frankly so um that that's kind of interesting and you know what it just reminds me so much of uh, 1999 2000 i can't think of um you know, a time since the market crash that we had in two thousand and eight. Immediately before that, it wasn't really like there were loads of relatively normal people going about about saying, "Well, let's we're buying and selling stock." You know, that wasn't an environment at all. You really have to go back twenty years to to that kind of tech boom to find a similar environment when so many people are, are thinking that you can make really easy money on the markets um, just just by going and, and buying this stock. And so that, for me, is kind of interesting.
1: It's kind of ironic that that the stock that has been the focal point of this is a gaming stock, right? I mean, it kind of symbolizes what's going on. I mean, we've yeah. turned the markets into a game, right?
2: Yeah, and and it's it's not just it's also a, a really I mean, I, I, no disrespect to the company, but it's not a it's a pretty crappy company, right? I mean, <laughs> we've got a similar company in the UK called Game. You know, their, their business model is they have got lots of physical stores and they're they're selling physical games and also secondhand physical games that's kind of a really old economy story you know that because people are generally getting software now through the internet they're not actually going and kind of getting physical things off off the shelf anymore so it it's it's just interesting that that they've chosen this particular company to kind of hang their hats on and um i suppose it is the is the fact that it was you know this massively shorted stock that caused the guys on wall street bets to say well you know this is this is the one we're gonna we're gonna attack because there's all these evil hedge funds on on there so it's just a kind of interesting confluence of factors that have all piled into a a single position and um i guess the the main difference between now and 2000 is the use of options so um the people are like well using options is it sort of accelerates the these bubbles now it doesn't necessarily do that on day one because on day one if you think about the two things you could do the two options you have if you like (laughs) you could take a certain amount of cash um, and buy stock with that directly. Or alternatively, you could put that up as premium, and then essentially an options market maker will hedge that trade for you and they will buy a certain amount of stock. But because they're buying out of the money call options, they have quite low delta. So there's not really that much difference in day one in terms of the market impact. Because you know, you might you might be having to put up, say, 10% of the notional value of the stock as option premium. The delta is probably about 10% as well. So on day one, the market maker is doing the same kind of Trade that would be happening in even in the absence of options, but of course, what you get with options then is the feedback effect, because uh, if the stock then starts rising because a lot of people are doing the same thing, well, then the options market maker then has to go out and buy more and more stock because the delta of this thing is exploding, and so they they kind of then ramp the market up for you. So um, that that's the major difference I think between here and two thousand, because back in two thousand, you know, ordinary investors were not trading options to the extent that they are they are today
1: yeah and actually you know i don't think there is any i mean i don't i don't take sides in this i think there were interesting lessons learned on both sides actually on on the equation frankly i would say that i think the hedge funds were probably more naive than anything because why didn't they notice that the amount of shorting in this particular stock could essentially turn against them i I think that's very rookie like risk management frankly and I don't know how much one single hedge fund were to account for that short sale. I have no idea. but And I also noticed in the press this week that there were some hedge funds on the other side of this as well. So it wasn't just retail versus hedge funds. It was probably a little bit more, a few more things going on behind the curtain. But I think it's a good lesson for a lot of people. My My main concern is just that I think that With these apps, and of course a lot of this is then being pointed again at people like, you know, the Robinhood people uh, and and those who create those apps. My concern is, and this is not a new concern, but my concern is that some of these apps are gamifying the experience of trading, right, or the process of trading. And if there's one thing I don't think it is, is a game. Or well, you could say it's a game, but it's it's a serious game and a lot of people can, can get hurt significantly if they're not careful. I think that that's the dangerous thing about this. This is not to say that private individuals shouldn't try and, and make their own choices. Um, they don't have to give it to professionals to, to, to do so, but they just need to understand. And, and you mentioned, you know, we have to go back 20 years. Well, a lot of these investors, they weren't around 20 years no. ago. They don't have that experience like we saw i mean how what it feels like when you see nasdaq tumbling 85 87 i mean it's um something you can only really i think internalize when you see it so that's the challenge
2: yeah so i mean i'll make a few points really quickly because um yeah. the, the first is in gamification so uh matt Levine in the bloom is bloomberg newsletter made some very interesting points about the fact that Robinhood charging zero commission psychologically encourages more trading sure because people think they're getting something for nothing they're not really of course because if, if you trade with an ordinary broker it's not just the fact that you're paying them to trade it's a bit more complicated than that because they will actually sell your order flow to um somebody like Citadel say or D E Shaw and because they, they like trading with uninformed traders and then they'll kick back some of that as a payment for order flow and they'll use that to reduce your commissions and you know, it's all—it's all kind of very complicated. But essentially, all Robinhood have done is, is kind of move some money between revenue streams and say, "Well, we charge zero commission." All that means in practice, of course, is that keeping more of the money back from the from the oil flow payments. Um, so, so it's not—it's not that it is actually cheaper to trade through Robinhood. And indeed, it may at times be more expensive. It's just that it feels cheaper, right? Because you're trading for free. It doesn't—you think you're trading for free. You think it's not costing you anything. When, of course, you're always paying the spread. And um, implicitly, that spread will effectively be wider than if you were trading through another broker, but paying them a commission. The second thing is, is, yeah, I mean, it's been played up in the media very much as this kind of good versus evil story. You know, evil hedge funds and against um, you know good, solid Robin. You know, Robin. I mean, Robin Hood. Right. The names there, right? It's the kind of right, sure. Yeah, it's like the, the stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. But actually, I saw some interesting analysis in the FT, which says that which was from Citadel, I believe. Saying, well, you know what? Actually, retail so- traders were actually net short. It wasn't really that this the story is true. So, actually, most of the people who gained from this probably were hedge funds. Most of the people, you know, there were some high-profile hedge funds that lost, of course. But net, net, actually, it was pretty, pretty close. And you can't really say it was just a straightforward wealth transfer from, you know, the big bad hedge funds to the the, the small retail traders.
1: I was just going to ask you something that's yeah, something that I kind of hear when people talk about it but I don't I don't know the facts around this. What is this about there being a delay between the prices that these retail investors sees and the prices that maybe people like Citadel and other kind of uh, firms can trade on? Is there a couple of seconds delay or how does that
2: I mean, you you need to get a a high frequency trading expert in in on on the show, um, Nielsen. I've got a couple of names I could suggest, I think. But um, there is this thing in the US called um, the, the, I think it's called the National Best Bidder Offer, something like that, um, or NMS. I forget the exact name of it. But basically, the idea is that, that you have to show people essentially what is the best price across all the trading venues at the same time. And actually, that's physically impossible. Because, you know, even, even if all the servers were co-located in a single place, it'd still be delaying. And they're not, of course. They're spread out throughout the country. Mm. So um, it's illegal for for hedge funds to be able to, or high-frequency traders, to be able to front-run small investors. But they, they do see, obviously, they're not really making money from front-running. They're making money from the fact that if they're trading essentially against noise traders which means they they can they can generally rely on making the spread pretty consistently without being run over. Whereas, of course, if they're trading against institutional traders, then they're, then they're, they're going to be like, well, this guy's selling to me. Is he going to continue selling to me all day? Is he going to push the price all the way down? You know, I'm going to have to adjust my my bid offer. Whereas retail traders, you can most of the time treat as random noise. And it's just in these sort of special occasions when the retail traders are all in the same direction that the the kind of business model breaks down. But generally speaking, it makes sense to trade against retail traders which is why these um you know hft firms do pay for for order flow because they're kind of confident they'll be able to make the spread most of the time i don't i don't think it's a front running story i think um that's one of those urban myths out there but it would be good to get someone who knows more about this on the show definitely
1: sure no that sounds like fun um, i think you mentioned in uh, our exchange before um, starting to record about how the kind of the fallout or how it was we, quote unquote resolved is that what you meant with the T plus2 uh settlement
2: or well this has been an, another one of these so things that has come up so I think one of the interesting things is that you know this story's happened and then people have said oh my God do you know that X Y and Z and anyone who's worked in markets is like "Well, yeah that that's that's what happens that's the way these things work you know so for example, Yes, brokers get paid for order flow. That that's the business model. That's the way it works. You didn't know about that. Oh well, that that's the way it works. And um, the other issue was was Robin Hood, of course, said, "Oh, you you can't trade." And was like, "Oh my God, you know this is this is a disgrace. You're you're standing up for the evil hedge funds." And you had people like, AOC, this kind of a liberal congresswoman in in America, who don't get me wrong, I have a lot of respect for, but but she clearly doesn't understand the way the market structure works because right. again, it wasn't a simple case of the evil hedge funds saying to Robinhood, oh, you've got to stop trading with these guys. You've got to be on our side. It was that because of the way that um, trades are settled, you need to actually be capitalized, essentially, um, to trade. And the the more volatile the stock is, the more capitalization you need. And the amount of sort of working capital, if you like, that Robinhood needed exploded overnight. So it was literally a case that they needed like another, I think it was another $600 billion dollar well, sorry no that's that's six billion dollars I think it was but some huge amount of money very quickly to be, to be able to to continue actually just offering to trade and until they got that money they they couldn't you know they, they could only say to people well, you can only close positions you can't open new ones because closing positions obviously will reduce our risk and reduce the working capital we need so there's these big areas of of ignorance about the way that the kind of plumbing of the financial system works and everyone's sort of gone oh my God, it's a conspiracy but actually there's usually very good reasons for the way these things work. And another example is um T plus two settlement, which means that trades don't actually settle when you do them. They settle a couple of days later. And actually in the UK it's three days later. And again, there are there are very good reasons for that. And it's not to do with the fact that it's it's not that it's a bygone thing from an age when everything was being sent by <laughs> post or something, or by by, or by horse, by pigeons, exactly. <laughs> It's to do with the way that the trades are, are financed um, by institutional traders. Um, basically, institutional traders finance their trades by using the stock as collateral. And that means you can't immediately have it appearing and disappearing from from the clearinghouse DTCT accounts at the same time. So there's all of these fine details that sure. kind of people didn't really know or care about and, and think is... And they're like, oh, well, we've got T plus two settled. That's a disgrace. We should be using um, blockchain and making it all happen immediately. And and it's like, well, no, there are, there are good reasons we, why it happens this way. We can't just change it immediately just because we've got the technology. Has it explored
1: some um, weaknesses in the system, do you think? You mentioned here things where you say it's actually kind of common sense, but has it explored some weaknesses?
2: I think there is, there is perhaps a weakness in that this issue where so many retail traders could do something that is so crazy is that a weakness in the system i don't know i mean problem is someone listening to this will say oh well that's rob ex-hedge fund manager standing up for the the you know the big establishment he's naturally going to be biased perhaps i am but i think what these people are doing is dangerous and i don't think they know what they're doing yeah and um that that's something that that sort of worries me to be honest and i don't know whether that's a regulatory failure or a a failure in the system or whether we should be having a go at robin hood for the way their business model operates but but it does worry me. it does worry me and concern me it's good it's don't get me wrong it's good that my 16 year old daughter has got a tiny amount of interest in finance it's good that ordinary people can can trade and don't get me wrong i've absolutely massively for ordinary people being able to trade but the problem is that most ordinary people are encouraged to trade in a way that is irresponsible and that in the long run will end up them losing most if not all of their money. That worries me.
1: Sure. No, I agree. I mean, I have to say on my side, I would say what worries me a little bit is that I think to some extent having, and I think I talked to uh, maybe Mark about it last week, you know, having exchanges where it's kind of the only place you can trade a market, right, if something were to happen with the exchange, for example, or something like that, I think it highlights a little bit the weakness, which, of course, nowadays, with all the mergers that's happened in that area of, of the, our industry, I mean, a lot of con- exchanges are controlled by very few entities, really. So I think that there is, you realize that maybe the plumbing has become better, but the plumbing has also meant that we have some really big, few big pipes that kind of keeps it all together. And if one of them could, gets kind of clocked up, it's um, it's an issue. But that's kind of the main concern. But now, of course, just uh, shifting gears slightly, I mean, then the Reddit crowd tried to do it with silver, but that didn't quite pan out. What, were your, what are your thoughts there?
2: Well, it's just a much bigger market, isn't it? We all know the stories of the Hunt brothers trying to corner the silver market, you know, way, way, way back. Most of these futures markets are so huge and so liquid compared to, a you know, it would be like these guys trying to do something with the price of of um, shares in in amazon i don't know even ten thousand retail traders with with a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars each is not really going to uh to make much of an impact on on a, on a big liquid market so i don't know it's a it's a weird this is why it feels like 2000 because in 2000 you had exactly the same dynamic you had people jumping on message boards and saying we're going to pump this stock up or are we going to or we're going to sh- shove the sh- stock down? And you had battles between longs and shorts, and it was all played out in these very thinly traded internet stocks with you know very low market cap, or to begin with, the market cap obviously went up as it has with GameStop. Um, but you know, trying to do those sorts of games in a big a, a big market is going to be very difficult. And the other thing is that you you know for this to be fun, for this game to be fun, you need a lot of volatility. And um you know the the sort of your big your really big mega cap stocks don't aren't as volatile nowhere near as volatile. I think the implied vol on GameStop now is something like four hundred and fifty percent, whereas on Amazon it's probably more like eighteen percent. You know, um on silver I haven't checked, but uh, I think it's no more than about twenty to twenty five percent. There's not just the it's just not as exciting. You know, you you need to be betting on something, if you're going to buy, say, call options, uh, you know, out of the money, you need something that's going to go up a lot to make it exciting. So, you know, I think they'll probably stick to the uh, the thinly traded, you know, story stocks.
1: Yeah, I I think that's probably, uh, I think that's true. I'm not sure it's going to go away, by the way, but I think it's true. I also and, um, wanted to ask you, I mean, do you think that just as a very basic rule, you just can't do it with a market that has a futures contracts as well. Meaning that it, we don't have the same kind of short squeeze phenomenon where people borrow a stock and you can only buy it back if if you can get hold of that stock. I mean, isn't that all? I mean, to me, it, it kind of again highlights the, the, uh, the strength of the futures markets, the liquidity of the futures markets, even though you and I both know there is a few futures markets that are pretty illiquid, but but then open interest would just grow if you really had a run for it, I imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it is quite different shorting stocks. So if we if we go way back to the original GameStop, there was this large hedge fund that lost, I think it's down about half now. And that wasn't all GameStop. They had the misfortune to be stuck in some other stocks that these guys decided to take on. But but I did a little bit of a back-of-the-envelope calculation. and Because and I, 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 what I was trying to work out was whether this was a failure of diversification on their part. Whether they just put, you know, a third of their capital into shorting GameStop, but they hadn't. Um, I don't know exactly how much they put in, but I I reckon their initial bet could have been as small as two percent of their capital. Oh wow! Which actually is, you know, fifth. That's one fiftieth. That that's for a for a, a kind of a multi-billion-dollar hedge fund. You wouldn't. You'd be like, oh, actually, that's pretty sensible diversification. Now, of course, the important point here is a huge difference between long and being short. If you're long 2% of your capital and you're wrong, the worst that can happen is you'll lose 2% of your capital. If the price drops in half, your exposure to that stock will drop by half, so it'll go from being 2% of your capital to being 1% of your capital. A fraction more because you've got to account for the loss, anyway. Now, if you're short and the price doubles, your exposure goes from 2% of your capital to 4% of your capital. If it doubles again, it goes from 4% to 8 And if it does what GameStop stock did, which is go up by you know two thousand percent, two thousand percent or whatever, then you can go from being two percent to being what's that forty percent of your capital, something like that. So you're you know you you the only way to if you're going to be shorting stocks, your kind of position management has to be really really good. So basically, the moment that thing starts moving against you, you've got to be cutting. So you've got to be cutting every single day just to keep that thing at two percent. you know that's assuming you want to keep the position on. That's assuming you don't want to just give up and close it completely, just to keep the same risk exposure. You've got to be cutting, 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 cutting every single day. Now, if that thing's moving against you at that speed in a thinly traded market, and you're you know it's a huge position, there's no way you can cut that quickly. And that's how you end up with a thirty, perhaps forty percent loss in a single position. When you started off with only 2%. Now, let's contrast that with the futures markets. It's completely different. My exposure to long or short will basically can basically be managed much more, much more easily and kept to the reasonable level. Of course, the thing's a lot more liquid as well. There's a you know, just it's a lot easier to, to cut positions because you've got the volume there. You're not worried about Having to do a lot of closing positions very quickly because um, the markets, um, you know, going going crazy. Because as long as you don't, you're not like huge. Don't You're not as long as you're not like say Winton, and you've taken out um, a position in a very illiquid futures market, and you're like 25% of the open interest. As long as you've not done that, then it's much easier to to manage that exposure. Kind of mathematically, it's easier because it's just completely different from the long short dynamic in stocks. But also, yeah, it's, there's more volume there, there's, which means and there's bigger open interest, which means you can avoid this trap of being stuck in a thinly traded position that's exploding against you and which you just can't cut fast enough.
1: Yeah, I mean that there is that, and there is also the fact that it's rare to see a futures market go up by a hundred percent in a short space of time. That's uh, in itself. Uh, the only market I can think of that can do that is the VIX futures. Yeah, And that's why you have to be really careful when you yeah, show. Yeah. It also sounds to me like maybe one thing that these guys weren't doing is something that we often talk about. It's just having a stop loss. I mean, when when you're wrong, you you just want to get out, right? You don't want to sit there and just watch it uh, run away from you. Um, just some simple, simple stuff. But of course, we don't know the full no. story, and very few people probably um, do, but it... Um, it's been very interesting to uh, to watch, and unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be um, it's going it's not going to be the last time we hear about these type of events. You wrote a post recently about how to become a systematic trader. I will be perfectly transparent and say I have not read your post yet. Well,
2: of course not, Nils, because you, you already are a systematic trader. You don't you don't need to do anything to become one.
1: <laughs> well, I tend to read everything you do. Rob. Oh, thank you. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what you wrote and what you shared with people and then we'll see where, where the conversation goes.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of post I've been meaning to write for a while because um, you probably get this a lot as well, Nils. You know, you get people coming to you saying, oh no, how do I become a, a systematic trader? You know, what, what's the kind of career path? What book should I read? Do I need to learn XYZ programming language? So um, it was it was a post really to save time for me because every time now every time someone asks that question I can go ah oh, well just copy and paste the link there you go read that that will tell you everything you need to know so that was the the sort of spirit it was written in but but I, I basically wanted to make two main points really so that there's a most of the post actually is a list of books and resources that I found very helpful so it was actually quite quite useful for me to kind of write all of those down and also update it because there's been Books that have come out recently that that I've I found really valuable, like um, I don't know, like um, Jack Schwager's new book, for example, like the the uh, Zuckerman's book about um, Renaissance, for example. I wanted to add books like that to the list. So that that was kind of that. That's the sort of second half of the post. It's just a big list. But the first half of the post is 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 trying to make this point about how you actually get into doing what we're doing now. And um, of course, one of the fascinating things is that everyone has come from a different route. And I don't know what, what exactly what your background is, and maybe you can share that with, with us in a second, but you know, my own route actually was doing something completely different, and then just going back to university, getting a degree, working for a bank um, as an options trader, then doing something else for a couple of years, and then getting back just by fluke, really, getting into hedge funds, and, and then, of course, um, seven years ago now, retiring from that, and now just doing what I do now, which is trading my own money. But you know, particularly in the CTA world, you 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 know you get people from all kinds of kind of random backgrounds. So some firms only employ physicists who've never worked anywhere else, and in other firms you walk in and it's all guys who used to be kind of trading cattle futures on the floor, and they're all Texans, and they're all they've all got you know the, the big hats, and you know, and it's a totally different mindset. So that's quite interesting. So the, the I did want to make one point, which is there isn't really a sort of straightforward kind of path from A to B. So oh no, what you need to do is you need to go to MIT and get this particular degree, then you go there and get a PhD, and then you work for a bank for three years, and then your hedge fund will snap you up. The world isn't like that. I wanted to kind of encourage people not to think too inflexibly, because you know what, in finance there are two things that are really valuable: optionality and diversification. So you always want to be trying with your career, with your life, to be putting yourself in a position where you have those two things. So that means I think my optionality. You don't want to, for example, paint yourself into a corner where you can only do one thing, because you'll you may get stuck. So, for example, you may become. Imagine the guy who's an absolute leading world expert in writing some obscure programming language that no one remembers anymore. His job disappeared twenty years ago because everyone's now using a different computer language. You don't want to be that guy. Um, And the other thing you want to do is have a diverse set of skills, so that and that's what I mean by diversifications. Partly because, again. It's a good thing; it protects you from the job market. The world changing. It's like, well, oh, okay, you can't do this anymore, but you have this other skill, which means you can transition into this other career. But also, for the job that we do, you do need a diverse set of skills. You know, you need a real random bunch of things that you need to be able to understand. You need to be able to understand economics. You need to be able to understand market structure. You need to be able to understand some maths and statistics. You need to be able to understand, um, you know, kind of the sort of financial mathematics, the financial econometrics. Um, behavioral finance, psychology, human—you know—human psychology. Uh, you know, I could probably go on. That's one of the things that makes it so fun, of course. But um, it also means that to be really good at this, it's not enough to have just done PhD in finance, worked in bank two years, go to hedge fund. You know, I—if I was, you know, starting a new fund, I'd, I'd want people from a much more diverse range of backgrounds than that. So, yeah, I wanted to encourage people to to just be you know, a bit more open and and, and sort of free with the career choices and and so on.
1: Yeah, I like that a lot. And i will definitely going to go and and read it. I think you're spot on. And I think it's a question, I mean, I know it's a question I get a lot as well. And it's actually a question that is really hard to to answer. But to answer your question, how I ended up in this uh, weird and wonderful industry, it's actually also completely by... Coincidence because uh, having started out as a trainee or bank, you know, I was trained in a bank, but I was very fortunate to, on the day my traineeship was finished, I I got a job on the trading desk, government bond trading desk, because one, I had the interest and I had applied for it and I had uh, made it clear that that's what I wanted to do, (laughs) so to speak, but also that the whole a large part of the government bond trading team, and this is back in in the 80s, of course, was pitched by another bank. So they literally needed people to fill the, the chair. So I was incredibly fortunate. I think that's one thing we also have to recognize, that you need luck in life. And so that was certainly one of my luck. And then later on, after a few years, I end up in a situation where a colleague of mine and I, we start our own firm And because we thought actually we had learned about trading futures because we were using the German Bund futures to hedge our exposure because Danish government bonds are really not that liquid compared yeah. to futures. So we were using futures. And that was a new thing, but we saw all these institutional investors in Denmark using cash bonds as a speculative in, in a vehicle and we thought that's crazy. You can pay 5 it was Deutschmarks, I guess, back then, but you know, pay nothing to to trade a futures contract. So, in our youth and naivety, we thought, well, let's just start our own firm, and um, we would just we we so we teamed up with the largest futures broker on the on on the um, life exchange back then, and we uh, would then introduce Danish or Scandinavian investors to to them trading futures. And of course, we worked really hard at this, and we got absolutely nowhere because back then, moving your money to London was like, oh, I'm never going to see my money again. And futures, oh, that was just a big no-no word in finance. And 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 you know, anyways. So I remember on a, on a business trip to visit this brokerage firm, and they had their offices in the Life Building. It was super super smart. Uh, really big experience for me as a as a young kid. I had to um, I went into uh, a meeting with them and we knew each other well and uh, at the time but I just had to be very transparent and say listen we're working really hard but it is almost impossible for us to convey this idea of you speculating in futures and moving your 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 trading away from the banks in Denmark and then um trading in with a firm in London and so they said okay well you know We have this small group of about 20 people sitting over there in the corner, they don't do just futures, they do something called managed futures where you actually have a track record where you can show people that you can make money from trading futures. Does that sound interesting? And I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting actually. So that's how... 30 years ago, I ended up in what is, of course, known as the CTA or Managed Futures Industry and have loved it ever since because it makes so much sense to me what we do. And, of course, that story has really just strengthened over time. But like like with you, Rob, it's complete coincidence, really. But I also like the fact what you said is that I do think our careers require, whether you end up on a kind of in a research role or in a, you know, as me, kind of the bridge between research and our client's role, you know, whatever it might be, you do need a broad set of skills. And I think that's the other thing you have to be open for. I'm sure my speech therapist when I went to... uh, elementary school would be surprised to hear today that I've been doing podcasting for 6 years. I'm sure they didn't expect that from someone who had to <laughs> for several years uh, go to speech therapy but uh, you know and dyslexia and all of that stuff. So that's just life and you have to put yourself through some of these challenges and you have to be open to take risks and chances. And and another thing that I was thinking about actually completely unrelated because I didn't know we were going to talk about this specifically But you talked about the learning process, right? And I was thinking to myself, if we had audiobooks and podcasts when I went to school, I would have been one of the best students uh, in my class, right? Because I don't read very well, I'm dyslexic, right? And so that was always tough for me. But learning through listening is just, and this is also why I love audio, is just a gift for me and I would say that I've learned a hell of a lot just from listening to other people, which I can then internalize and I can process and use in my own thinking about you know, a topic or whatever it might be. So I think that's what I would encourage. And by the way, the other thing, and that we don't have to turn this into a podcast about education, but I will say, having kids now that one just graduated, another one will graduate very soon, kids are being taught, and you're obviously teaching yourself, you have children, I mean, teach to, uh, sorry, kids to a large extent are being taught things that are not necessarily for the jobs of the future, right? I mean, and some of the skills that they kind of pick up on their own, whether it's editing videos or audio or whatever, it might, might be really useful, even about finance. I mean, I don't think my kids at all have any real classes about personal finance and, and how to deal with that and so on and so forth. And so I think you're, you, you have to be very open-minded and try and go your own path in addition to if you go to college or university, whatever it might be. But I think you have to be open-minded and try and teach yourself things that may not be mainstream but might be really useful mm. later in life. Absolutely. we got some great questions. So I'm going to jump in. The first question here. This was a kind of an interesting one because I I tried to... This is from Michael, by the way. I tried to understand what Michael was saying initially. I wasn't quite sure I kind of understood it because he says he talks about whether if you're long... Because we're talking about at the moment trend-following strategies are pretty much long everything at the moment. It's just how the way the the trends are at the moment, whether it be energies or grains or metal stocks and bonds we kind of long everything and and so michael raises the point whether we should essentially try well you should try and hedge some of that exposure by selling the dollar because often a lot of this is correlated back to the dollar and i thought initially that it has something to do with the currency risk that you were running and i thought well if you're a u.s investor there's no currency risk right but if you're european it could be but actually that's not what michael meant he really meant because of the correlation to the US dollar for some of the a lot of these markets, especially commodities, I mean if the dollar suddenly strengthened, you would see a reversal most likely in some of these trends. And um, hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. I mean I did say to Michael that I didn't think you could find hard, strong enough correlation to make that hedge. I don't I, it would be random. but anyways, what are your thoughts? It's a different angle to things.
2: Yeah, because it's it's kind of an artifact of the way that we generally put our positions together, which is essentially independently, right? So you know, we I guess most of us run our systems with our position in in say S and P five hundred depends purely on what's happened in the S and P five hundred, and the same in gold and the same in corn and so on. And it might be that you have some cross market signals as well potentially in there, but you know they're probably not a big part of a lot of people's portfolio. Now, what that means is that occasionally, and it's it's more, it's not kind of a deliberate, it's just something that is going to happen eventually, just through kind of luck or bad luck, if you prefer it. But your positions will end up being essentially a sm- effectively a small number of concentrated bets. So you might have positions in, in my case, about 40 futures markets, In in your case, Neil's, many more. But actually, if if you were to kind of do the really fancy quant thing and look at the um, the principal components of of your risk you might find there's actually one or maybe two principal components massively dominating that so a good example would be for example if you had one of these situations where there was a kind of quite a strong risk on risk off thing going on in the world so bonds and equities are very negatively correlated and you would say long equities, short bonds and you might look at that and think, well, that that's under that's you know that's a nice diversified set of positions, but actually that's effectively a single bet that you're making, which at that point would be a risk-on bet—the the bet that equities go up and um, bonds go down. And what Michael appears to have identified here is essentially what looks like a load of bets that are basically actually just bets on the dollar. So the question is, should we do anything about that? In answer to to Michael's question, how do you hedge this? Well, actually, it's quite easy, right? I mean, you would just, if you identified that all of your bets, say, were effectively just a long stock bet, and you thought that was too much of a risk for whatever reason, I'll talk about that in a second, then you could just maybe reduce your stock positions or actually add an explicit kind of hedging position to your portfolio where you basically just sold a basket of equity index futures similarly here you could um just do a load of IMM currency futures trades in a separate hedging portfolio to hedge your dollar risk it's not it's not difficult to do that the hard thing is to say well should we do this is this a sensible thing to do um and it's it's a kind of a i guess it's a kind of a risk management question the question is do you do you feel that being exposed to a single source of risk you know a single source of risk b- being such a big part of your portfolio at any given time does that worry you if so, then then yes, you you should hedge it. You know, I don't know the answer to that question because it will depend on the kind of investor you are. So I'm perhaps quite laissez-faire and I'm like happy and comfortable with the fact that I have all these independent bets and that sometimes they all line up and point the same way and I'm effectively making a single bet. And probably about half the time, that will go against me. And about half the time, that will be in my favour. But if I look at my back test and look at my returns, I'm kind of okay with them. Now, it might be that... I, I'm being perhaps a little bit too kind of relaxed. It might be that it just so happens that right now there's a single concentrated in, bet in my portfolio that I haven't seen in the back test and therefore my exposure is much greater than it was at any point in the past. And it might be that in the back test I've been lucky and when I've had my concentrated bets, more of them have paid off than not. But but so you know, it's something you'd need to test. You'd need to come up with a way firstly of identifying these bets And then essentially sort of seeing what effect it had on your your returns, because you would expect that any kind of hedging, anything that kind of interferes with the natural way the portfolio wants to be, will reduce your returns. That might be okay if you think it's reducing your exposure to peak risk. Uh, And I know if Moritz was on here, he'd be saying, well, you know, doing this will reduce your positive skew. Uh, Undoubtedly, it will. So, again, it's a question of whether you're willing to give up a little of the positive skew for a bit more safety in the tails.
1: Yeah, and I would just add to that because I do think it's something that people struggle with a little bit and that is this: the periods where our positions are uncomfortably aligned in one direction but it's actually part of the strategy. That It's how it works. It's what's needed. I call it sometimes conviction in the portfolio. We need that to have those big run-ups that kind of allows us to also have the run-downs so I completely agree with you. It's something you have to get comfortable with. And, um, you know, if you're not, then maybe trend following is is not really the strategy for you. But I appreciate the question, Michael. And I hope we gave you um, a little bit more nuanced answer than what I gave you uh, in, a, in a short uh, email reply earlier. Now, then we have a question from uh, Dennis. And he actually says very kindly, great podcast, gents, keep up the great work. Your back catalogue and weekly podcast are the food for my current system design. One such topic, scaling, really caught my attention and I'd like to learn more. On episode 122 and episode 125, you briefly discuss scaling in and out of positions based on some level of confidence slash conviction. You mentioned, for example, the action of trading with different speeds and avoiding an all in, all out approach. Can you please discuss in more detail the nuances of scaling in and out of positions when designing systems? The pros and the cons of such method would be great to hear. And then he does ask a question um, that is meant for for more. It's about how does trailing ATR base stop functions uh, with scaling, but you could probably handle that as well, Rob, knowing knowing you. But um, Yes, let's try and dig into
2: Dennis's question on scaling. I'm certainly not going to tread on Moritz's toes. He can he can take that. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, so we did discuss it, I thought, at some length. So but um, so some of what I say now may be repetitive, and I apologize, and that's because I don't remember everything I said before in, in fine detail. But so the first thing is I think you have to distinguish between the trading you're doing at a single speed. And the trading you're doing once you've put together a a kind of basket of of different speeds. So let's just think to begin with about trading at a single speed. Okay, so you've got a very simple system that just uses, um, say, a single set of moving average crossovers. And um, will will basically, um, in its simplest form, be a binary system where, you know, when the fast moving average crossover crosses the slow, you buy. And then when it crosses back over, you, you sell. Now, how much you buy and sell, well, you basically buy and sell kind of one unit of risk. Um, And, uh, you know, we can talk about how you define a unit of risk another time, probably. Now, the question becomes, is there a better way of doing that? Because one disadvantage of doing it that way is costs, because you're going to go from being long, say, I don't know, 15 contracts to being short 15 contracts effectively, immediately. So you're going to do a 30 contract trade. And uh, yeah, you could probably do some things to spread that out a little bit, but um, it is going to be more expensive than probably changing position gradually. And that's probably not true if it's a thirty contract trade. But if, if you're in my old job at AHL and your thirty contract trade is actually a three thousand contract trade, then it's definitely true that that's probably a bit too much to push through the market, even even over the course of a day. So one thing I, I've done in my research is to actually look at the relationship between the strength of a trend and the amount of kind of risk-adjusted return you expect to make after that. And with some f- exceptions, there's some funny stuff that goes on in the tails, and it's actually a topic of ongoing research for myself. But mostly, it's a very straightforward linear relationship. In other words, as a trend gets stronger, you would like to increase your position in it because you have an expectation of a higher risk-adjusted return. So what that means is, Instead of doing the binary thing, where when the the fast crosses the slow, you immediately flip from being short fifteen to long fifteen, at the point where it flips, you'd effectively have no position on at all, because there is no trend, right? The the mark as far as the indicator is concerned, the market has been going sideways, so there is no justification for having any position on at all. Of course, your position will never be exactly zero, but if it's less than zero point four contracts, then of course that will round to zero, right? And then assuming the trend starts to strengthen what you will then see is the fast moving above the slow the strength of trends increasing so that means that your expectation is that you'll have a higher risk adjusted return which means all the things being equal you should be getting longer so you will buy your first contract and then if the trend continues for a couple more days you'll you'll be like okay now i can buy my second contract and so on and that will basically continue up to a, a point and i I Sort of have a limit in my system that I never want to have a position that's more than twice as big as my average position. So at some point I'd stop buying, even if the trend continued to strengthen. And then of course if the trend starts to weaken, you'd then be reducing your position gradually again until the point where it reaches zero and the thing crosses over, and then you'd flip to short. So that works, and it wor- it works basically because the as I said, the risk adjusted expectation of future returns is pretty much kind of linearly dependent on the strength of the trend it's not pyramiding it's not you know there's this thing called pyramiding that some people do um where they're basically like well i I like to add to winning trades i don't give a toss that it's a winning trade it's irrelevant to me you know the I, i like to think of my trading system as stateless effectively so the fact that the trade has won made money in the past is irrelevant The reason I'm adding this to my position is because I think that given what's happened in the markets recently, there's a higher probability of a bigger move in the future, and therefore that justifies having a larger position on. So that, I hope, kind of gives you more detail about how it works with a single speed of system. Now let's think about how that will work if we've got a number of different speeds of systems. So we've got, let's keep it simple and assume we've got something that's a bit fast, medium speed, and, and a bit slower. If you think about the the market kind of starting in a a state of pure equilibrium, the the price has just been going horizontally and nothing's happened. Okay, and this never happens, of course, but let's just imagine that because it's nice and easy. Now imagine the price starts to gradually creep up. The first thing that's going to happen is that your fast system is going to to start buying and it will buy quickly because it's a fast system and it will quickly reach its maximum position. At the same time, your medium system will start to buy a bit more slowly. And your slow system will, of course, be buying, but even more slowly. And so if you think about the interaction of those three things, if we go from a world in which the trend is perfectly flat to sort of going up exponentially, Niels is laughing, by the way, because I'm I'm using my hands to kind of illustrate what the trend's doing. And of course, none of you listening can see this, but but he, he's finding it very amusing. So imagine the trends going from perfectly flat and then kind of rising exponentially. Your position will do something similar the, the fast will buy quickly the, the medium will buy more slowly the slowly will buy more slowly of all but you'll see so you'll see your position increasing in a very smooth kind of way and similarly if the trend starts to reverse again the fast will sell off more quickly and so on so you end up with with a similar kind of behavior but it's even more kind of smoother um, because you've got these different speeds you've got this diversification so the slow the slow system is acting as a as a break on the fast system and and um, reducing the the numbers of trades it would do if it was the only thing in your portfolio. Um, so you you get this this much much nicer behavior. Now, the, the, these things are kind of different effects. Okay, they act they 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 kind of together make this nice behavior, but they are different. So you can trade it with a single speed. You can also do something that may sound a bit weird, which is to trade binary slow, medium, and fast. And if you do that, you will actually see behaviour that looks a little bit, again, like pyramiding. Because if you think about going from a perfectly flat trend, as it starts to rise, well, first of all, your fast system will buy one unit of position. And then a bit later, your medium system will buy one unit of position. And then a bit later, still, your slow system will buy one unit of position. So you will have a little bit of scaling going on just due to the fact that you've got diversification across speeds. But what really gets the scaling kind of more continuous is, is having within each individual speed this, this kind of relationship between forecast or trend strength and position size.
1: Yeah. And by the way, it was a friendly smile. It wasn't a laugh, Rob, but there
2: we are <laughs> just uh, right. setting
1: right. the record straight here. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that's a great explanation. I would add one thing when you think about scaling and what we want, of course, is to some extent, we do want bigger positions overall in the trends that we think have more ways to go. The question is, you know, how do you determine that? And so, at least in my own model trend-following portfolio, I think about it slightly differently because the model is comprised of different types of trend-following, different ways of doing trend-following. So, and as I describe it as, you know, classical trend-following type manager, it's almost like if you were in a, in a bank and you had to hire, you know, 5 or 10 people to trade on your prop desk, you probably wouldn't hire the same types of traders you would hire different types of traders. So that's the kind of thinking that goes into the model portfolio that I have and where some of them would resemble kind of classical trend following type managers, not too not too fast, not too slow. Then you have a group of models that where we try to model the kind of the the discretionary type trader, you know, someone who's maybe even slower to get in because they want to be really sure. but when they when they do get in, they take a bigger risk because they are feeling really good about the trade. but they're also super quick to get out because, you know, it's like humans they they uh, get nervous really quickly. And then you have another group of of models that are just really quick, and their main role is just to of av- you know to, Kind of hedge against a big crisis getting into stocks and bonds early and getting out of stocks and bonds early and getting short all that so that's another just wanted to throw that in there to dennis that that's another way of thinking about scaling maybe not the common way we do that in our industry but i don't um but i kind of like it still so anyways wanted to add that
2: yeah i just quickly quickly add that i do something similar as well so i have different ways of looking at trend following but I didn't want to make my, my kind of explanation any more complicated than it already was. So I, <laughs> no, so let
1: me, so I just did that. Sorry about yeah, that, yeah. Dennis, That's but okay. there we are. Okay, all right. So now we move on to our friend Woody. Good to hear from you, Woody. Hope things are doing well with your new firm. So Woody wrote a few questions here. I'm going to try and not butcher the uh, the, the wonderful English that you wrote here with references to uh, European football players and, and so on and so forth. So Woody starts off by saying that even in the face of CTAs having a Lewandowski-esque five goal close to last year, I think that is interpreted to a strong year because he's a superb goal scorer is as far as I understand it. I can't shake the nagging suspicion that this immense exogenous manipulation will pose an enduring challenge for trend followers, and he's referring to central banks, I'm sure. As we all know, CTAs rely on steadily building persistent directional agnostic price action with the Fed and Treasury cementing their unholy alliance and the ability to fix the cost of capital. It seems logical to assume that the ambiguity effect will be pervasive among market participants for some time. Ambiguity aversion and the clustering illusion are... Contagious states of mind in an environment where choppy price action becomes increasingly featured in the markets, investors are prone to make comfortable yet decidedly suboptimal allocations decisions. Now, Woody, you couldn't have written this in plain English for me, please. But anyway, there we are. (laughs) Now that I've shared with you that I'm dyslexic and had to go to speech therapy as a kid, I mean, next time, please send me in plain English. Anyways. Thus, it would seem that CTA strategies that carry a reputation of being, at best, complicated, and at worst, a black box will suffer heavily capital outflows and sparse inflows. Yield control seems like an excellent tactic to turn our profession into gambling and destroy any chance of rocket ship trends to gather traction. Now, that's just question number one, so let's just start <laughs> with that one, Rob. What do you say to our friend, Woody? I
2: mean, that, that's not a question. That's an essay, isn't
1: it? It felt like it, but anyways, yeah. it's a good point. I mean, I know yeah, I yeah. think a lot of no, people, of in, in many ways in a kind of a one line saying, well, hang on, if if central banks are doing all of this stuff to kind of control things, how are you going to have enough trends to make money?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's a few points I could make. The, the first one is what he said about black boxes. I mean, I think good CTAs aren't black boxes. I think I would never invest in a, in a manager where I didn't have a pretty good understanding of what they're doing. Now, of course, they're not going to tell you that the finer detail is. They're not going to put their code on on GitHub and say, right, this is how we trade, you know. Full transparency, because of course, then they wouldn't have a business. But, you know, good good CTAs, especially if, if you're a sophisticated client and you ask them the right questions, will give you quite a lot of information about what they're doing and how, for example, how also how they expect their markets to behave in different market environments, which is kind of what Woody's getting at, right? So let's just put that comment to one side. So this, this is... Um, this is a deja vu comment for me. I mean, it's extremely well written, but it's it's like something that I've probably heard said to me every day for the last 14 years or however long, it, 15 years, however long it's been since I've been in, in the CTA industry. So if I think back a few years ago to when, um, you know, in US interest rates were at the time unbelievably low, like 2%, 10-year rates, just how new, can you imagine 10-year rates being that low? Incredible. I mean, here we are panicking about the fact they've gone up to like 1.1%, you know? <laughs> but the, the same kind of argument was made, which is essentially that that CTAs um, have had a, if you look at the back tests, have had a big headwind from, um, you know, falling yields and therefore an environment in which you've you basically got central bankers controlling effectively the, the interest rate market and, you know, not you, you're sort of thinking, well, the the implicit sort of, Story here that Woody's telling is that you, you've kind of got the central bankers with their levers on the interest rates, you know, and they're kind of doing this backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and therefore um, making it hard for for trends to develop. That's the kind of mental model I, I had when I was listening to that very well written um, question. So there's a couple of points to make. One is that it's not necessarily the case that that will prevent clear trends from developing in the fixed income markets. So if I look back, at the last um uh, what must be 10 10 years 11 years since QE be- first kind of began in the U in the US and Europe in a, in a big way if I look at the portfolio performance of fixed income markets in Ctas over that period in fixed income specifically it's still pretty good we've still been able to develop from from major trends developing you know in in I think particularly in the European bond markets actually maybe less so in in the US so it's not necessarily a given that a particular kind of market environment will automatically be bad for trend following. It's usually much more subtle than that. The second thing is to use the, you know, probably my favorite word, which is diversification. So yes, if you are a CTA that only allocates to the US bond market, I mean, I hope there isn't anybody out there who's invested in a CTA like that. If you are, get out. Not because, um, you know, they're... um, it's necessarily the case that that they'll automatically lose money in this market environment, but because they're criminally undiversified, you know the whole point of of this you know wonderful way of the futures market that we can allocate to all of these different asset classes in all these different countries is to get diversification, and that what that means in practice is if you have a year when fixed incomes doing badly for you, well you'll make money somewhere else. I mean, it's looking like twenty twenty one. Based on just one month, admittedly, isn't going to be great for fixed income performance. But my expectation is that other sectors will take up the slack. Okay, they haven't done so far, but we're only a month in, and it might be that we end the year flat. But um, you know, you, one of the reasons why we, we, we basically we walk into the casino. I don't like using gambling metaphors, but we walk into the casino. You know, we look at all the tables and we basically place a small bet on each of them. And maybe there's one table that that isn't where our bets aren't going to work out so well. And that's maybe the fixed income market. And because of this position scaling, because of various other things, our bets in that market will be smaller than they would be in a year in which would have been profitable. But we're laying bets on all these other tables as well. We're laying bets on the wheat table, on the corn table, on the, on the VIX table. Um, and in, our expectation is that over time, those bets will be profitable. So you know the, the biggest defense against any anything weird going on in any market, whether that be the bond market, the equity market, or as we've discussed, the silver market, is to make sure you've got a diversified collection of, um, of, you know, of bets across different asset classes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would want to echo that uh, for sure because I do think. I mean, first of all, it's one of those things that really tells one manager apart from another. You know, which markets do you trade, and how do you allocate risk among them? And uh, you know, on our side, um, you know, we have uh, quite a, ha- a large exposure to commodities, which hasn't really been that helpful in the last few years, but. Uh, as you rightly say, it doesn't mean that it won't be helpful going forward. So, I completely agree with that to the first part of your question, Woody. The other thing I would just say, and that is, when I read your question, or at least I tried to do it as as best I could, you have a group of central banks who have never foreseen any of the previous crises we've had. So, what could possibly go wrong with their current policies, right? I mean... In my opinion, pretty much anything can happen. And the fallout when you've taken such a stance for such a long time could be dramatic, to say the least. And this is again where having strategies where no opinion and where they will just simply react to whatever happens, even, even, even if it looks crazy to some, is a really strong thing to have on your side and let me just add one more thing, and that is when we talk about diversification, I don't refer to just diversification of markets. I refer to diversification of investment process. That's really important. So that would be my answer, even though it's not new or novel, but but I think um, that would be one. Then in anyways, I'm going to continue to try and do my best with your second part of your question, Woody. My second question is about passive penetration and its impact on CTA strategies. Mike Green has spoken eloquently about increased volatility and atypical price swings being a natural result of fewer active participants lending support and resistance to equities. Will this structurally induce volatility pose a grave threat to a medium and long-term Trend followers. I just want to say one thing, um, not necessarily directly to that, but Mike Green, which you know, I love his work, and he's been on the podcast here and shared some really interesting thoughts with Rob uh, and Mort and me in the summer. I was just watching Danish television about uh, a few days ago, and suddenly on Danish television, Mike Green pops up and is being interviewed about you know uh, the chaos that were happening the prior week. And what he said, and I've never heard him say that before, was that he actually he felt that the passive investment group, let's call it that, was 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 about forty four, forty five percent of of the total volume now. And according to his models, they're growing with three or four percent every year. And so they're they're very close to being the majority of what's going on. And basically, what he said on and and the and the and the journalist just asked twice to make sure he heard right, because Mike was basically saying, according to his models, we will face an equity crash. And because of the fact here, you're just selling because of flows, not because of value. You're selling indiscriminately. He felt that we could end up in a crisis that we will never rise from again. That was his words. So. And you can imagine a world like that where things like that will will cause... And by the way, I mean, if equities fall by 80-90%, uh, most people would say, oh, that's devastating. But let's not forget that that's actually what happened 20 years ago in the NASDAQ. And, you know, we still survived. It just took a long time before you got back to, to break even, so to speak. But in any event, those kind of price moves, I mean, that's exactly what trend followers should be I wouldn't say wishing for, but but certainly that could be beneficial to those type of strategies. So um, um, your thoughts, Rob, on on this point?
2: Yeah, it's interesting trying to think about how kind of the market dynamic is affected by behavior of a passive investor versus a, um, a non-passive investor. I mean, it, it's sort of similar to the discussion we were having earlier about how the market market-making behavior by options traders changes the dynamics of the market. So, for example, there's a very... There's a kind of nice piece of research going around at the moment where it's shown that on days where market makers have a lot of gamma gamma exposure, which which in layman's terms means that they're very, very, very sensitive to the movement of of the underlying assets that their options are priced on. That you get you see really significant price movements towards the end of the day based on what's happened during the rest of the day. So what's happening essentially is that these guys are all kind of hedging, rehedging their options towards the close. Um, and so if the price has moved up during the day because if they're you know because of their gamma exposure, they' have to push it up some more. so there's a really very kind of quite clear intraday effect going on there now, it's harder for me to think about how trading will be changed by by passive investors. um I guess passive end investors trade less um than active ones, right so that that's maybe that that that's that could be a good thing or a bad thing it could be a bad thing if if it means that markets become less liquid because there's just less volume there and that means that crashes could be exacerbated because you know if if you're selling and there's no one else there to bid the price is going to go a lot further of course than if there's someone there willing willing to pick pick it up the main effect that index funds have is you know the only time they really need to trade is when is either when they get get new money or redemptions or when shares move in and in and out of indices, and they they're kind of getting smarter at avoiding the the, the index trade becoming too big of an issue. I mean, it it was you know there was a, a bit of fun when uh, Tesla went into the S and P 500, right? Because they, but normally when shares go into indexes, they come into the bottom because they're coming in purely because their market cap has risen. Tesla went in straight in I I don't know number eight or wherever it was. Because you know the they, the reason they were coming into the index wasn't size; it was because they just actually started making a profit, you know, for the first time in forever. And you needed to make a profit to be in the S and P 500. So um, that that's that that was an unusual occasion. But normally, the these in the, the buying and selling of index index trade is not such a big deal. So so really, then any buying and selling an index fund is doing is going to be driven really by what the underlying investors want to do. So the question is whether passive investors are likely to behave in a way that will make markets more or less stable. Um, now, you would hope that people who are kind of into passive investing are also into passive investing. In other words, they're not looking at their portfolio every day. They may be looking at it every month or even every year or perhaps even never. And that would reduce volume, of course, but it would also mean that you wouldn't get a kind of short term momentum effect that you might get with active investors where you know they see the price going down they panic and sell everything but, you know that that wouldn't necessarily happen mm. I mean I have a lot of respect for Mike Green, very interesting guy. I do think there's a couple of things pushing against the everything's going to become passive story uh one is the fact that the more people are passive, the more opportunities there are for active investors, and at some point. You know, you get you get to the point where there's just so much money in active investing, it'll reach some kind of equilibrium where I think the market will always have active investors. And I don't know where that equilibrium point is. I don't know whether it's, you know, 1% or 30% or 50%, which is maybe we are where we are now roughly. And actually, and it's pure anecdotal evidence, of course, but the, the fact that we have got the Wall Street bets thing going on shows you there is still a huge appetite out there for people to do active investing. And as I said, that may be completely the wrong thing for them to do. It may be that they, they, I think most people are better off as passive investors. It might be that passive investing is bad for the system, but for most people, passive investing is the right thing to do. But I think there's a lot of people out there who don't want to be passive investors and do want to be active investors. So I, I'm not sure what, you know, I think we will never reach the point where we're 100% passive. And that might, we might not reach the point where passive becomes a danger. And I'm less convinced perhaps mike is about the arguments as to why passive is a danger in terms of market structure at least
1: yeah i mean um interesting views um what i will just comment on is this thing about you know hopefully a lot of passive investors are indeed passive and they'll they'll never do anything until they need to but just knowing people and human behavior i think that's one thing almost we can be guaranteed that that's not going to be the case and i do worry that they will all jump ship at the same time and that's where the problem then starts. But in any event, who knows? It's pure speculation on, on our side, but um, but definitely an interesting topic. Now we're going to jump to uh, a, um, a message you got from Daniel. I think there are several questions in here, but I think the most relevant one maybe is if you have a signal... But you did not get into it if you begin trading a new account or system or market and you find yourself that you missed an entry when should you do it should you wait for the next entry and risk watching a big trend on the sidelines take a late entry perhaps with smaller size and then you write daniel i guess this could segue into a broader question how should one how should you launch a diversified trend following portfolio let each market begin with a fresh entry as they come or, as they come or put on positions in all markets according to where the systems would have been positioned by the most recent entries I know what I'm going to uh, on what I'm going to answer Rob but let me hear your views on this
2: Yeah I mean I so I think I should point out that a good friend of the show Richard Brennan also replied yeah. to this question on Twitter and he did. You know, he he was he's very much a fan of running a demo account in parallel with the live accounts, and um, commencing the algorithms immediately on the close of the demo trade. That way, you enter on the first new signal in accordance with your back test. So that that was his answer. I, I thought I'd throw that in there because obviously he's, he's a a, res, a respected uh, person, and uh, his opinion yeah. should be heard definitely. So, kind of, I'm not sure whether to ask, ask, ask answer the big the big question or the the subset of the question. Let me start with the original question. So you find that you missed an entry. I would personally just the way my system works, um, if if I was to close down my futures account or start trading a new futures account and then just fire up my system straight away, it would basically just put on all the trades it would have had anyway. So it's it's state as I said, it's effectively stateless. That's not quite true because there's there's something called buffering, which means that I won't put a trade on if my, the position I want is not that different from the current position. And so that might mean, for example, that in a market where I had a, a very small position that I would want to have on, and perhaps that would be a single contract, actually, it might be that the, the fact that it's zero, a zero contract is is kind of within the sort of buffer range. So I wouldn't actually put on that, that single contract trade. But that aside, I just put on all the trades basically from scratch. And that's just to do with the way my system works. Because it's a continuous system. It doesn't think in terms of discrete entries and exits. So you know, it, it, the, the question almost doesn't make sense for for you know for for the for this context of the way my system works. Now let's imagine I'm running a different kind of system, which does have discrete entries and exits, uh, which is a sort of system that I've written about, although one that I don't actually run. To be honest with you, I would probably wait and then and then enter when when I you know when when it was justified so it's a it's a difficult it's a a difficult question for you to answer because I'm not used to thinking about this this discrete systems. Can I just just answer the bigger question about how should you launch a new portfolio right very quickly with that, I would again do it from scratch in the sense of in theory I'd go straight from having no positions to all my positions with a caveat that I'd probably do that over a period of time. Um, I probably, If I was starting from scratch, I'd probably allow a couple of weeks to gradually build up my positions. And the way I do that is by increasing gradually the amount of capital I had allocated until it reached the full amount. Um, And that's for for a couple of reasons. Firstly, to do with trading costs, because obviously it would be cheaper to gradually get into positions. And secondly, it's to do with the... The fact that there's less risk that way because you're you're kind of going to be buying it at an average price over a couple of weeks rather than all in one day. And if it just happened that on that day the prices were particularly bad for you, then, you know, you'd have a, a lot of regret about that. So so that's what I do in that situation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly uh, for, uh, for the latter as well. I mean, I would say if you have a new system that you want to trade uh, on your portfolio, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, I mean what you really want is you want the performance that your backtest suggest meaning that you want to participate in the future performance of the model and yeah i agree with you you can reduce the risk of entry by just allocating a certain portion of the capital uh, over over time that makes sense but generally i wouldn't I wouldn't distinguish between trades and not trades. I would just put it all on um, uh, all the time. Since you mentioned uh, Richard Brennan, I just want to uh, read a, a tweet that he wrote also that I really liked. Not entirely sure what the context is, so, uh, but 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 he wrote that unlike trading styles that exploit patterns in the now. Trend following is a rules-based process that exploits a slight overall bias in liquid market data. Your performance can only be gauged over a large trade sample size. Impatient people miss this subtlety. And I uh, really like that from Richard as well as a lot of the other good stuff that they do down there. Red Eagle, hello to you Red Eagle, you have a question and it is How often do you find your systems in a pairs trade, in positions, in typical correlated markets, but long in one and short in another, such as long gold, short silver? Do you get excited to see such diversion uh, or more watchful uh, of risk when they move in lock? Step, Rob, do you get excited?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it, I don't really look at my positions very much. That, that's, I know a lot of people think that sounds weird. And if, if I was still working, you know, in an institutional environment, I would be looking at my positions every day. But because I have a great deal of trust in my trading system and I'm mostly just letting it run, I, obviously I could tell you what my positions were now if you really wanted to know. I do have a report that gets sent to me every day with what they are, but I don't necessarily mentally register any of them. Having said that, there have been occasions in the past where I, I remember once a few years ago, I was long, I think I was long soya beans and short soya oil which intuitively sounds weird and I did actually dig into it and see what was happening and it was to do with the fact that although the momentum on both contracts was similar the carry signal was very different and that was sufficient to make one one long and one short um i mean it actually goes goes back to this discussion we had earlier about sort of factor risk um and um it's it's kind of most of the time in in trend following portfolios you effectively see fairly strong outright asset class risk so because most equity markets move together, generally speaking, you'll be long most equity markets, pretty, you know, pretty much, give or take one or two. Um, so you will have that strong equity on bet. Um, and in many ways, it would be nicer to have to be mostly long and then mostly short a bunch of equities and have no overall exposure to the equity market. But that really is a different kind of trading. You know, that that's a, you know, um, you're looking then for relative value signals, not not what we're looking for, which is absolute direction. Um, in each individual market and then if they come out long and short well that's just just an accident really it's not something you necessarily want to seek out because you design your portfolio differently if you were to do that so you do you know do relative momentum relative carry and have no exposure in any individual asset class so um so yeah i mean it's kind of fun to see and it just makes you think oh i wonder why that's happening and you dig into it but but I'd I'd caution you against getting too excited because I think you might be drawn then to the to the dark side of of doing like relative value trading rather than kind of sort of more pure market direction trading.
1: Yeah, I'm very much uh, aligned with your thoughts to Red Eagle there. I um, I also have these uh, position sheets from my model portfolio every day. I actually don't really look at them. Uh, I do notice some of the trades that are taking place, but if you know if one market is long and short, etc. I did notice, though. I will say that doing in the preparation for kind of the. Beginning of talking more about that portfolio, I did notice that at the beginning of this year, there, it was pretty much long everything, and I comment on that a little bit with Moritz um, because he was also long. I think pretty much everything uh, at that time. So, but but I think the main the main thing that trend following should give you, it should give you the freedom to not look at these stuff this stuff every single day in in great detail. You just need to follow the process, rely on on the research you've done and your back tests. And actually not spend too much time on it. I think you can run a trend-following portfolio. I mean, you run it pretty much automatically, so you may not spend any time on it, Rob, but but I think I could run my po- uh, model portfolio uh, you 15-20 know, minutes per day if it was running live, which, of course, I did for many years. So I know that's probably the, about the time frame it will take to do. And then you go do something else with your life, and I think that's the beauty of, of what we do. Um, so um, so yeah, Red Eagle. It's interesting, but it's not something we pay much attention to. I would say.
2: Yeah, just quickly looking actually, because I I just thought I might as well look at my positions just for just for the hell of it. So yeah, yeah I'm actually interestingly only short v, uh, v, v stocks, and I've got a small short in in uh, bubbles. And then I've got actually a lot of markets where I've got no position at all and then the, everything else is long. So not, not that dissimilar really from what you're seeing.
1: Maybe you should be careful revealing your shorts if the Reddit group is listening, Rob. Yeah. Think about yeah, it. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Yeah. Okay, so moving on to the last question for today from uh, Cordura21. Question is, trend following in indices, yes or no? And why, if you do it over single equities instead, how do you define the universe? Something that actually we've talked to Jerry about uh, in the past, but any any strong views on this?
2: Well, obviously as futures traders, we we generally speaking are trend following indices. Now, a lot of bigger CTAs have to diversify their portfolios have added single stocks to their universes, so they're, they're they're trading single stocks as well. AHL, Winton, to, to name but a but a couple of of the the bigger names who are doing it. Um, and now, one one interesting thing is that the the way that trends sort of seem to work in single stocks is different from indices. Um, and actually, so um, Andreas Kleinau, of course, who we both know is a Swiss hedge fund manager who's written quite a few books. Um, so his, his first book was about sort of CTA style trading futures. His second book was about trading equities. And, and like the third sentence of that book says something like, you know, forget everything you know about trend following in futures. If you've read my first book, equities are totally different. And um, I guess I like to think of this in quite abstract terms. I have this mental model where basically we talk, I talked not long ago about the fact that, generally speaking, if you're long equities, you're generally long most equity futures at the same time. And that's because trends generally are kind of quite large sort of macroeconomic forces that are sort of driving the world. There's these, the way I think about trend following is you've got these big latent kind of forces and trends um, and then the prices we see are just manifestations of those. Um, and the the trends are going to be clearest at the asset class level. Um, so I actually have in my portfolio a specific model that looks for a, what's happening across an entire asset class and then takes a position in each instrument based on that. So if equities as a whole are going up, it will give a signal to all equities saying you should be going up. And of course, then I have individual models, which may mean that those some of those equities I end up with a short position on because they're doing something different. But you know, it is it is quite a, a good a good model that seems to work quite well. So that if you then think about breaking down those equity indices further into sectors or even into individual stocks, then the there's more gonna be more room for kind of idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies, right? There's gonna be more it's gonna be less about the kind of big global equity trend factor. I'm more about individual ha- things happening to individual sectors and to individual stocks within those sectors, and as a result, you you tend to find your um you're doing different things. So trend following still works reasonably well at the sector level. So if you think about something like U.S. tech as a sector, trend following still seems to work reasonably well. So you can trend follow you know if you trend follow like a U.S. tech ETF, that seems to work pretty well when you get down to an individual stock it's so by then you've got so much kind of you know idiosyncratic company specific noise mm-hmm. that the kind of global equity trend factor that that's driving all the returns way up in, at the index level you, you know is 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 just so dissipated you you need to come up with really quite different kinds of model and and that's where things like throwing in fundamentals or some kind of satire model where you you're looking at Mean reversion across across equities in the same asset class, where that tends to work quite well. So, if if you was to say you got to trade individual equities, the way I do that probably is is with a similar approach to what I do with futures, which is to identify kind of global trends and then country trends, and then layer on that a model that accounts for the sort of difference between, you know, the kind of big trend and the company specific stuff that's more likely to have a mean reversion character. So that's a complicated answer to what might seem like quite a simple question and but you know obviously for futures traders you can't trade the individual equities so it's kind of irrelevant but I do think that it's a nice thing to understand this way that things kind of break down as you go from global down to the micro level because as futures traders we sit kind of in the middle at the index level and um you know we're sort of seeing a little bit of both effects but generally speaking it's fairly clear trends
1: Yeah, and I would just add to that and that is you may want to go back and listen to the last couple of conversations we've had with Jerry on because Jerry was the one of us who um, would trade individual stocks uh, in his portfolio and and still does and have done for many years. I think he did it even back in the 90s when I worked uh, for Jerry. And so... um, So it was very interesting to hear that he had changed a lot his view on equities in general, how much uh, it should um, have as a role in his portfolio given the events of 2020. Because I do think that on the surface, it seems like that we're getting more diversification from trading individual equities. But I think what Jerry realized was that actually when... The proverbial hits the fan, you're trading something that is highly, highly correlated and uh, and therefore it has a completely different risk uh, attribution to your portfolio. Um, so he made some dramatic changes um, to the way he does uh, the equity part uh, of his system. So I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to how Jerry uh, has talked about that in recent episodes. Those were the questions. Obviously, if you're still with us after one hour and 37 minutes, I applaud you for that. <laughs> Let me quickly do a run-through and before we come to the final important points of today. Performance so far as of Thursday, Friday, by the way, I think was a good day in general. But as of Thursday, the top 50 index is up 1% for February, uh, pretty flat, slightly up for the year. Sock Gen CTA index up one and a quarter for February and also fr- flat for the year. The SockGen trend index also up a little bit more than 1% in February, but up about 36 basis points so far for the year. The short-term traders index uh, halving its um, loss in January, so it's up 81 basis points uh, in February, and it's down 81 basis points for the year. Um, And of course, we know equities had a good week so far, up 4.2% for the MSCI world in February, up 3.1% for the year. But government bonds down 43 basis points so far this month after a losing month in January. Now, final thing we always try and do, Rob, is just to share a couple of interesting resources that we've come across this uh, week. Well, this week in my case, uh, the last few weeks for for you. Anything that stood out to you?
2: Yeah, a couple of things. So um, there's actually an article on the FT website um, a couple of hours ago um, which I didn't have time to read before the podcast, but it's about Melvin Capital, which is this hedge fund that lost a lot of money in the GameStop, um, and um, it's um, kind of going into details about the 13F filings um, that they had, so they're disclosing what positions they actually had uh, in the stock. So um, if you, it's a bit more of an inside story today. We were kind of saying, well, we don't really know what happened, and blah blah blah. Right. So there's a bit, there's some more information in that article that kind of reveals a bit more what may have gone wrong there. And the article, I should say, written by uh, Michael Mackenzie and Lawrence Fletcher. The other thing that I found quite interesting is um, the latest uh, market comment from um, Husman Funds. Yeah. Uh, so that's H-U-S-M-A-N Funds, um, and their website is husmanfunds.com. And it's very, very. It's a very interesting graph showing the the relative valuation of. Um, the sort of different deciles of the S and P 500. Um, and it's really kind of showing how the, the kind of markets dispersion is just, you know, um, I mean, these guys, basically, I think it's fair to say that they, they think we're in a bubble. Um, and you know, they're, they're showing these, these graphs showing valuation ratios that are far worse than anything we saw in, in, you know, in 2000, which we were talking about, um, earlier. Um, and, um, the, the, um, the, there's sort of, yeah, very interesting uh, details about basically saying, well, you know, you may think it's just there's a small bunch of firms that are overvalued, but actually the whole market, no matter how you kind of cut it, it's it, we're seeing valuations that far exceed 2,000. Uh, now, my, my first reaction to that is always to say, well, does that account for the fact we've now got interest rates at zero? Because, of course, that would affect what a, a fair valuation would be. Does it affect structural changes in the economy, you know? So you you can always pick these these bearish arguments apart but but um it's worth looking at because the the the, the graphs of the way they've kind of looked at the data is different from what I've seen before so I'd say that's worth reading.
1: Yeah and I just want to remind people that actually uh, I forget his first name Husman but um he um did actually I think get the bubble in 1999 pretty right um and um, so, uh, yeah, no, I've I've come across some of their research as well. So, uh, John he, John Husband. yeah, John Husman. he was on a podcast yeah. recently. Could have been Macro Voices actually recently. So, definitely worth uh, checking that out. I mean, for me this week, it's actually a, a, a conversations. Uh, it's a, a podcast on the Mep Faber show where he had one of our other friends uh, of the podcast, namely Salem Abraham. On that. And just Salem's story uh, is, I think it's so refreshing. Obviously, been a CTA, I think from 1988 or so up until uh, recently, kind of pure trend following CTA. But when Salem talks about investing and trend following and all that good stuff, he does it in a very down to earth and very common sense way. And I just really like that. So I think everyone can benefit from a story like that. I think on that note, Rob, we're going to wrap up this week's conversation. If you've enjoyed it, which, of course, we hope you did, um, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. Um, They mean a lot to us, and um, we want to keep a nice flow of uh, of new ratings and reviews. So um, if you have five minutes, kindly do that. If you want to um, send us some questions... Now Rob of course will be back in four weeks but next week uh, I'm joined by Moritz so uh, if you want to send a question to me and Moritz um, you could do so at info at and we will do our best to um, answer those and of course you're more than welcome to follow us on Twitter. From Rob and me thanks ever so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime take care
0: and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.